It's the Warbler Crazy Podcast, talking all things warblers, birding, photography, gear, and even bagels on the road. Join the fun and foolishness with your co-host, Stephen Michaels, and his sidekick, Enrico Palazzo. Now, from their bunkers in suburban New Jersey, it's time for Warbler Crazy. Welcome to Warbler Crazy, your destination for bird photography talk on the web. I'm your host, Stephen Michaels. Joining me is my sidekick, the Enrico Palazzo. How are you, pal? Hey, Steve. How's it going? Hey, so we have an incredible and prolific guest with us today. This is the episode that our Warbler fans are going to be excited about. So without any hesitation, today's guest is a household name in the birding world. He's an innovator launching the well-known app Bird Genie, which identifies bird by their song. He's well-known for his ear knowing over 3,000 bird calls. In typical Warbler crazy fashion, a musician who can both speak about rock and roll and robins. Working with artists such as Phil Collins and the Grateful Dead, it's his book, The Warbler Guide, that makes him a rock star. It's our Bible here at Warbler Crazy, and we're so honored to have with us him today, Tom Stevenson. Hey, Tom, how are you? I'm okay, thanks. After that intro, I feel like I need like uh, an agent, and a personal manager, and uh, a limo. <laughs> well, that's what that's what we do. We we butter you up to get ready for the hard line of questioning. So uh, okay, yeah. Uh, that's how we for... keep. That's how we keep people talking. Exactly. exactly. <laughs> yeah. Right. So yeah, uh, just uh, yeah, you'll have to. Lay it on if I get a little bit low energy here. Just, just a few <laughs> more compliments. We'll, uh, we'll keep you going. We'll keep you going. So, hey, thanks for joining us. Uh, we've been looking at this uh, episode since we found out that you were hopping on with us. We have a lot to cover. But before we do, let's let the audience know about your book with Scott Whittle, The Warbler Guide on Princeton Press, available at all your fine bookstores, as well as your app, Bird Genie, available for download on the Apple App Store and Google Play for Android. And the so, Warbler so, Guide app. Don't forget yes. that one. Yeah. Yes. That's, I, don't forget I, that. I, I love that. <laughs> I, I absolutely love that thing. Hey, we, right. we all do. That's why we're here. So, Tom, let's jump right into this. Uh, very common love on this program has been music. Last week, we had a uh, YouTube birding storyteller, Mark Smith, on. He's a uh, former pro musician. I am a, a former pro musician. My mentor and uh, former digiscoper with Koa and Swarovski, Kevin Bolton, is a former pro musician. And now you. What, what is it with music and birds? Oh, you know, I think you start listening when you're a musician and then uh, you go outside and you go, hey, there's some cool songs going on. And, uh, I, I, you know... The only problem with emphasizing the musician part is uh, often I give a lot of w workshops on learning bird songs and sort of songs in general. And um, people sometimes go, well, it's easy for you because you're a musician and I'm not a musician, so it's hard for me. And I don't let people get away with that. I, I think um, the only advantage you have as a musician is you tend to have spent some amount of time listening maybe more carefully than normal people. I don't think a musician has anything that's innately um, an innate advantage necessarily 
other than maybe just paying a little more attention. And that's something anybody can do. As long as you can tell one pitch is higher than another, then you're ready to go to, for learning songs, I, I think. Cool. So did you, uh, did you study music in college? Was that your discipline? No. Uh, <laughs> I went to college for a little while, uh, but I was in a band that got a um, preliminary recording contract with CBS, so we all kind of were left school, or almost all of us, and... Um, so I actually never finished college. And when I was going to school, I was mostly studying the weird soft subjects like English literature and psychology and philosophy and just the, the weird stuff that will never get you a job these days. But uh, back then was kind of cool to think about. <laughs> yeah. So uh, for those that aren't aware, perfect pitch is a rare phenomenon that allows a person to identify a musical note without any type of reference. I've been dying to ask you this question. Do you have perfect pitch? <laughs> no, I don't think I have it in the traditional sense. Um, I, nowadays I play piano quite a bit, classical stuff and um if I'm playing a lot, then often I can start to recognize certain pitches, but um, I don't. I don't really have like the the sort of super laser focused perfect pitch that other that some people have. Um, and I think it probably would be somewhat useful, especially if you could tell, for example, that the center pitch of a Lee's flycatcher call is slightly higher than the center pitch of a willow flycatcher call. Um, that could be useful, but generally speaking, it's not that not that important. Tom, this is Enrico. I'm fascinated by the mention of CBS. Um, the first real job I ever had was I was actually in college, and I was an assistant manager of a record store here in Burden County. And at that time, uh -huh. 1978 or so, CBS. CBS was it. See, every, every label was owned by CBS. Every important artist was on CBS. When when did that happen? Well, let's see what year. That would have been 68 or 9. Oh, so they were putting, the label was building. Yeah, I mean, yeah, they they still had lots of lots of hits then. They were sure. a big, 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 big label, but... Um, yeah, that's a long and tortured story. Okay. But, um, <laughs> well, tell me this. The then. Band that I... <laughs> tell me this much. What did you play? What instruments do you play? You mentioned piano. What else? I actually, actually, you called me a musician, but I, I was a drummer mostly. So that's okay. That's where I started. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, I, I played um, drum set. So with a lot of the touring and jazz, I, I, I toured with my own band for about nine years or so playing college concerts, which was an amazingly fun thing to do in the 70s. Mm -hmm. But uh, for that, I played primarily drum set, but I also played a lot of classical percussion instruments, and I, I played a lot of contemporary classical music uh, when I wasn't touring, and I played a lot of jazz, so I kind of played all different styles. I also played cello and um, some keyboards, and now primarily all I play is piano, classical piano, but... Uh, Back then, it was mostly drums. Okay, well, that, that's okay. I only moved to the guitar because nobody ever asks you to play them their favorite song on the drums. So I, <laughs> I, I, I had to get something more melodic. They usually ask you to go away. Exactly. <laughs> Fortunately, my dad was a drummer, too, so it was it was in the house all the time. Uh, oh, okay. That's nice. 
who who were some, who were some of the other artists that you that you worked with back in the day? Anybody we'd know? Yeah, there are there were a bunch of different people I worked with in different ways. Um, I worked, I did for a while. I did some studio work, um, but when I got into the studio, drums uh, were becoming uh, a highly sampled instrument set. Yep. So people started to do more drum programming than drum playing. Um, and so I did some programming. Uh, I did, I actually had um, one of the early samplers, the, uh, the EMU, um, I forgot the model number now, but the big EMU sampler and some other synths. So I would actually design sounds a lot in the studio oh. too. Um, and I looked, I worked with a bunch of different different people then um uh i worked with uh teddy pendergast i oh. worked with uh, nick martinelli who did a lot of sort of bluesy sure. stuff um i was in philly then so uh, i did a couple things at gamble huff studio oh, cool. and uh, yeah, nice um different places in, in philly but um i i did uh some work i sort of graduated into a lot of digital editing because I became very interested in that and um, early on. And so um, I worked with uh, George Blood from the Philadelphia Orchestra, getting them into digital editing. Um, I actually trained the FBI in digital editing. That that's back, something uh, I want to. That's something time. I want to ask you about um, because of my. <laughs> that's a long. <laughs> All right. Well, well, let's let's at least let's at least touch it because of my line of work, which I'm not going to get into. Uh, there was a very brief window where the FBI was a possible career path for me, and I ultimately chose not not oh. to do that. Um, what yeah. did you do for those guys? Yeah, they didn't pay very well. No, they don't. <laughs> they offered me a job. Well, I'll t I can tell you the story if you're interested, but first I should look your name up in my database here to see if there's a file on it. Um, uh, I had another run into the FBI before this, which was a whole other story, which we probably shouldn't get into right now. But um, so I had been doing a lot of digital editing, and uh, one day, um, very typical, you know, stereotype story guy pulls up in a dark SUV wearing sunglasses and says, "We hear you know how to edit audio, and nobody knows there's an edit." <laughs> and I said, "No, well, maybe." You know. <laughs> Who's asking? And uh, to make this part of the story shorter, I, basically they wanted me to show them how to do that. So, and what gear they needed to get and that sort of thing. So I told them I was very expensive and they said, that's okay. This is a black budget project. And there's no bidding required. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, so I went down to um, Quantico area. I wasn't actually at Quantico. It was another place called Backlit Bay, but um and uh, I, over the course of a few different sessions, I trained these guys. They were um, pretty sharp guys in general, I felt, but their mental muscle hadn't been exercised a whole lot lately. I didn't think so. They would kind of grasp a concept, and they would kind of they would kind of slip out of their brain right. again. So I had to like train them multiple times. But um, one at one point. Um, uh, during a lunch break, they said, there's a guy upstairs who wants to talk to you. And I'm like, oh, okay. So I go up there, and there's this guy with a big desk, you know, and he's like, we want to make you an agent. Oh, jeez. And, 
We want to put you in charge of the audio department. No red tape. You don't have to go through any training, you know, or anything. We'll just do it immediately, and you can start to work. And I was like, well, that's interesting, you know. <laughs> how, how much does it pay? And he got kind of sheepish, yeah. and he was looking at his his chart, you know, because he said, well, it's a government job, so it's all based on how much schooling you've had and how long you've been here and blah, 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 blah. And the bottom line is they just weren't paying no. enough what I was making at the time. So um, I declined. But, uh, you know, it was intriguing to think about. I'll tell you why they needed it, because mm-hmm. that's kind of an interesting situation. Um, they would get surveillance tapes from, you know, if they were trailing like a, in this case, the case I worked on with them was a rapist, I guess, a serial Wait. rapist. But they would have some criminal that they were, looking at, you know, and they get phone conversations or just mic, you know, wire mm-hmm. or whatever. Um, and all the conversations that they had, they would have to transcribe and then show to a right. judge because they couldn't necessarily introduce it as evidence unless the judge said it was okay because sometimes people would incriminate themselves on mm-hmm. something else or there'd be some of the reference that wasn't legal for them to use. So in the old days, they would cut tape. And the jury would listen to this tape jumping around and get prejudiced against sure. the tape because they felt like it was mm-hmm. doctored, you know. And um, so they wanted to be able to do the edits they needed to do without anybody knowing that there was an edit. So it didn't, they didn't get prejudiced against right. So, Tom, uh, transitioning a little bit into more uh, bird songs overall, uh, our birds of choice are, are warblers. And being a seasonal bird, it's a constant effort to maintain the retention of the songs. How much time do you spend on maintaining your chops for identification of calls just kind of on a daily basis? Hmm. Well, that's an interesting question. So I give workshops on how to memorize bird songs. Um, And I've given quite a lot of those now. And I have a system that is based initially on my um, goal of learning three or 400 songs when I started traveling internationally, when I started first traveling by myself and then doing some guiding internationally. Um, And if I was going to a new country like Bhutan, I I really wanted to know as many of the vocalizations there as I could in advance. And um, I started trying to learn those just by repeating them and sort of using the, the standard drive around in your car with a CD, you know, or with a, with a cassette or something. And I realized that wasn't very efficient. So I started studying memory um, uh, books, sort of, sort of um, techniques of memorization that there's been many studies of because they're so important for schools and, you know, all kinds of things. And, um, so based on based on studying that stuff, uh, I came up with a system that works really really well for learning for memorizing bird songs. And um, so for warblers in general, I don't really need to study the songs in the spring or anything. Um, calls, on the other hand, I don't know as well. They're they're uh, they're um, much more similar to each other and. Um, I've never spent the time in like Cape May where some of the guys in Cape May will spend like two months um, on the dike there in the fall listening to bird calls and 
those guys can get really good at, at identifying birds by their calls, um, warblers in particular. But um, uh, so calls, sometimes I try and brush up on if I'm if I if I want to, especially if I'm when I'm guiding, which I do a lot in the, right. in the city when I'm not traveling. But over the last couple of years, I've put together five or six different sequences of songs for people to, because I've had this request a lot, how, you know, how do I learn the songs? And I've written a lot of articles about sort of the general theory, but if, if you Google Tom Stevenson National Audubon, you'll see my article, one of my articles on that. Um, there are Birdwatchers Digest. I just did a three-part series for them. Second part's coming out now. The third part's all about memorization. Um, that's going to come out next month or, you know, the edition after this one is just about to come out. Um, so there's a lot of a lot of data out there on that. But um, one of the key points is uh, not to pick lots of songs to learn. You should pick anywhere between four and seven at the most. So we should talk about how the COVID-19 pandemic has fairly well clamped down um, birding activity. Uh, at least for most of us, especially here in New Jersey, where the core of the birding spots are, are completely locked down. What what can we do to stay mentally sharp, even just at home when we're waiting to get back out into the field? Hmm. Well, um, yeah, I mean, that's a good question. It depends on how you want to be sharp <laughs> mentally. Um, <laughs> um, if, if so... To learn songs and to learn bird ID points and everything like that, you need to be able to test yourself using active recall so that you don't listen to something that tells you what the name is first or look okay. at something with a name written right under it. So what I would do um, if I were trying to uh, <clears throat> sort of relearn the Warbler songs or uh, Really relearn the plumages and so on. Is I would put together either some playlists if it's the songs or some flashcards or uh, just take Sibley and photo each page and cut up the pages so that you have images for all the plumages or the warbler guide, um, all the plumages, and uh, assuming you're going to focus on warblers, I'd definitely use the warbler guide, and then. Um, give yourself some random tests and uh, then you could check the name by, you know, however you had the, had the system, but you could have the name like way down on the page so you couldn't see it when you're looking at the photo or something like that. Um, that active recall is what's critically important for actually learning something. Um, and that's borne out by lots and lots of research into memory theory and so on. Um, I've put together um, playlists for songs, um, if you're trying to learn warbler songs, and they're on the uh, Warbler Guide okay. Facebook page, I believe. The number of features in the app are are staggering. They really, really are. I love the 3D imaging. I love being able to slow down the calls. Going back to being a musician, that's how I learned a lot of songs. You slowed yeah. them down, and 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 learned them that way. And it's important yeah. for me because when it comes to the calls, the songs, I'm. I have to, I got to cop to it. I'm really, really weak. And I rely on Steve a lot for that. And I have to stop doing it. Um, but it, 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 <laughs> I got, I got, I, I got to learn, you know, I got to learn to walk and then run a little bit. Um, but 
it, yeah. it appears to me, and I think anybody else who looks at the app, that it had to be a painstaking process for you guys to collect and catalog all of that. Did you do that specifically for the app, or did you have these recordings already in an existing library and catalog? What what, what was it? What was a little bit of the process there? Well, good question. So, first of all, uh, in terms of learning the songs, I would highly recommend you try. You go to the the Facebook page, and you have to scroll down a bit, but find those sets and try starting with with those sets uh -huh. in terms of your personal learning. And maybe check out one of those articles about how to how you sort of integrate the image. But um, yeah, to go back to your question, so the song stuff um, is something that I've been working on for quite a while. Um, as I mentioned, the the Thrasher article was kind of where I first started thinking about how structure is is critical. So for the Warbler Guide. Um, I took as many recordings as I could find, like Zeno Canto and Cornell and so on. And I have a good relationship with Cornell, so I got a lot of vocalizations from them. But um, And I made spectrograms, and then I analyzed all those spectrograms. And I have big spreadsheets of how many sections, how long is the song, what's the space between the elements, are they falling, are they rising, uh, you know, what are the qualities. And I, I just sort of slowly developed the structural language that is in the Warbler Guide book. So um, the problem with learning songs from most field guides is that they they just use transliterations, which are like, we. I'm looking at one right now, Indigo Bunny, wee, wee, right. wee, zier, zier. Um, <laughs> um, and transliterations are fine for the person who does them as long as they... Right know the song already you know basically but i i but totally no i totally else. agree so, with that by the way so everybody good good so everybody's very weak on songs i mean that's one of the things that, you know i give lots of talks on because of that reason so um so the first thing that i tried to do in the warbler guide and and as you said i had to work very hard at this because there was no no template for it no one had ever looked at songs and said, well, what are their structures? What are their qualities? Or, you know, that didn't, I didn't even know if qualities was something that was important or how many qualities or whatever. So I spent a couple of years really um, looking at the spectrograms, laying them out, trying to look at song structures um, and sort of coming up with the, 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 the three or four qualities that are in the Warbler Guide and the, and the various song structures um, that are in there. And those things definitely do help you hear better, absolutely 100%. And having given a lot of these classes where I, you know, take people in the field also, and we talk about what makes a robin different from a, a rosebushy grosbeak, for example, or a red-eyed vireo and a blue-headed vireo, um, once you start to look at spectrograms and look at the structure, in other words, it's important to not only look at the spectrogram, but know how to look at the spectrogram. So if, if you think about it, like if you have a book of sparrow, right. sparrow images, right? And if you didn't have any language to describe them, so you didn't know what a supercilium was or a postocular mm -hmm. line or a wing bar or anything, you kind of look at them and they all kind of look the same. They're right. all brown, you know, and streaky or whatever. And it's only as you develop the language and 
sort of the, the, the structural language that guides your eye to look for the supercilium, to look for a malar stripe, and to look for, and once you have that uh, structural um, format with the words, then you can actually do an inventory of a bird that's objective and that's something that, that will mean something if you look at it an hour later or a day later or whatever. It had wing bars or it didn't have wing bars. It had uh, tertial edging. It had long primary projection. It had streaking, you know, on the flanks, whatever. You now have a, a, a framework for identifying something. With songs, there was no framework for identifying songs. So it's kind of like having a field guide that had no pictures for birds and describe birds with words like mm -hmm. they're happy <laughs> and smiling, you know. <laughs> and so how good is that? Well, it's not very good. So <clears throat> so with the songs, um, that was the key research that I did is to try to look at how can you objectively look at these songs and find structural things that will guide your ear to hearing more closely what's going on. Is the pitch rising or falling? Um, for example, it's very easy to tell yellow warbler from magnolia warbler, even though their qualities are somewhat similar, because <clears throat> they both sing three three uh, section songs, and the second section, the yellow warbler always has two or more elements or phrases, and the magnolia always has only one. I was I remember the first time I heard a prairie warbler, and I was like, oh, that's a chromatic scale, and. I was just like, you know, literally yeah, it was an ascending go. chromatic yeah. scale. And I started but that's how I remember it now. Yeah. Right. And, and that's how I trained Enrico was to think of it. And so, you know, when we came across your book and kind of dig, you know, we're digging into it and it was just like, oh, there's some, you know, there's some connection here with what we're doing. And we're trying to combine, you know, somewhat of the mnemonic, you know, singing it out by, by words, but I think for uh, the way that yeah. I've been successful has been to try to parallel it with kind of visualizing it to music. But that, again, is coming from a musician's perspective. Mm -hmm. Sure. Well, if that works for you, so whatever in your experience works is triggered, let's say, by that song. That's the tool that you want to use, because that's what's going to happen when you hear it and you don't know what you're listening for. So, in other words, that's your brain's sort of virgin reaction to that vocalization. But the next step is you have to not only go, oh, that's a chromatic scale, a rising chromatic scale or whatever. You also have to then say, well, how do I tie rising chromatic scale to prairie? Because it's no good to go and hear the rising chromatic scale. Go, oh, that's the bird that sings the rising chromatic scale. <laughs> so, in that case you'd have to think about how chromatics, chromaticism would relate to prairie. I can't think of a thing, right? I can't think of any, any way to look at it right off the top of my head. I mean, the way, the way that I link the name with the image I get is I get also the image of something rising and also something buzzy, but I picture myself walking up a meadow or a prairie surrounded by buzzing bees mm -hmm. and the bees are yellow they, yeah. as okay. the prairie warblers coloration and so on. And so, so okay. I sort of try to tie as many of those things together as possible. Um, now with chromaticism, you, you might have to take a second 
leap with that. Right. What right. else is chromatic? What else has chromatic? Um, you know, just well, some other some other connection. The, col- the, col- uh, the color of my Mustang is chrome yellow. So. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. Now you're starting to get there. That's exactly it. You, you and the crazier the better. I mean, literally, there's so much research that shows that the crazier the image is, the retention, the better. Well, now I've got it. You will remember it by absolutely 100. percent right, Yeah. Yep. So now, if you hear something chromatic and then yellow you chrome, Mustang, look what we just did. There, look what we that? just did. Right, yeah. and it's got a bunch yellow of black trim on it too, Steve. It looks just like a prairie warbler. There you go. You'll never forget that call now. <laughs> you know, it's it's pretty incredible because, you, you know, when you're going through it, you don't realize. And I think the technology has allowed for us to be able to hear these birds in ways that we were never able to do. I think photography opened up one element and now audio recording is another. I'd heard uh, or I'd seen a report on Facebook where there were different dialects for morning warblers based on just kind of locations. Right. So I think that mm-hmm. that was something, you know, that it just becomes, it becomes mind blowing. And quite frankly, Tom, we could, we could keep talking <laughs> to you all night about this, but <laughs> I know, I know, you know, we, we've gone over our time, but um, what, what's next for you in, you know, I know you had mentioned you have another uh, couple of books coming out, but what, what's on the horizon for you after, you know, we get through COVID and pandemic time. <laughs> Well, actually, COVID, I'm locked down here, sequestered, you know, as it were. So I'm just working on these books and apps. So that's my life's more or less the same. I can go into Prospect Park here because it's not closed, although it's getting a little crowded. But um, you can pretty much maintain your distance and wear a mask and so on. Um, So I'll probably see some of migration. But um, yeah, generally, uh, I'll just I'm working on these these projects, which are pretty big projects. Um, I was mm-hmm. at the Museum of Natural History, um, uh, working in the collections there with some some people that are collaborating with me on these projects for a couple of months before they shut it down. So I'm looking forward to getting back there. And um, uh, but generally speaking, I'm just working on these 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 new books and um, with a little bit of international travel. I had it trip plan to the arctic but uh, that's not going to happen now it's going to be for may mm. but um, um yeah i don't have to talk and guide it all got canceled in closing uh, please if, if you guys like the podcast please share it like it share it with your friends facebook social media uh you know we we, we love do, doing this format and having great authors and like tom on so uh Thank you Take guys care, for Tom. listening. Tom, thanks for joining thanks. us, and we will see you next you time on Border Crazy. Keep up the good work, guys.